In the last year and a half during COVID, there's been a lot of conversations, more conversations than I can remember having in the last 15 years about what we call eschatology. And eschatology is the study of future events. It doesn't just mean the end times, right? And so if you were a Jew and you were studying eschatology, that would include the, un, the Messiah and the unfolding of the, of the revelation of God as, as, the, as the aspects that are recorded prophetically within the Bible um, come to fruition. And so it's not just the end of the world, but that tends to be what we think of as we think about eschatology. Indeed, the spreading of the gospel to the nations is also eschatological but it has, because it hasn't fully happened yet. But when we use that term eschatology, we normally, most people tend to think about the end times. That's what they mean. And so because COVID happened and then all of a sudden on YouTube, you started having these kind of YouTube prophets pop up with their theories and this, that, and the other thing. And uh, lots of people were curious. A lot of people, probably some of you guys had never studied um, eschatology before, and then the fact that you had all these things going on in the world made you curious. I have to say this, sadly, and I do mean sadly, much of what people ran to wasn't necessarily the most academically reliable sources. Most of it was actually really good cinematography, really good marketing on YouTube. And so, you know, that's part of the day and age that we live in. We live in a day and age when we have an excess of information, but sometimes we lack the ability to filter what we should or should not be listening to. And we say, well, this looks well done, therefore it must be true. And we call that in college, um, it's actually a real thing called media literacy that they should teach, which is knowing when you're being marketed versus when you're actually just receiving and processing information. Because it's all too easy to be completely mesmerized by really good video editing and eloquence in communication or uh, like authoritative communication. And so if I just speak emphatically, well, obviously I must be right, you know, because he raised his voice. But being loud doesn't mean that you're right. It doesn't mean that you're speaking truth. And so today we're going to touch on some of this, some of these issues of eschatology as revealed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Specifically, this is the question that we're going to deal with today. Okay? Is the return of Christ imminent? In other words, the day of the Lord, which Steve touched on, um, and we were in Greece and the recording was a little fuzzy, and so it didn't get a chance to really listen to that, so I apologize, Steve. Don't kick me out of the family, all right? The day of the Lord in the Old Testament, the New Testament, it refers to periods of God's judgment on his enemies, the deliverance of his people. The first reference to the day of the Lord is the Passover, but then we see it used prophetically to look at the conquering nations that would come in and, and exile um, Israel. We see that prophetically the crucifixion is referred to as the day of the Lord. And then we have this end times eschatological view of the day of the Lord when Christ will finally execute judgment on his enemies and save his people. And so is the day of the Lord imminent? Is that day imminent? Specifically, this is what it says in, in 2 Thessalonians 1, or 2.1. 
concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together, which Paul's linking in this section at least, as this event, we ask you, brothers. And so is that event of the coming of the Lord Jesus and the gathering of his saints, is it imminent? Is it imminent? I'm going to read these verses again. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be too quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the fact that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So here's the situation. Some unhealthy understanding of the day of the Lord had snuck into the Thessalonian church. And Paul, since his letter, in other words, they misinterpreted what Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and now they were confused, and the, relate, the, uh, the consequence of that was some unhealthy action, activities, and understanding. So what did they come to believe? Well, by looking at the other contemporary churches, um, although we cannot know emphatically we can know with strong probability that what's going on in Thessaloniki is probably very similar to what was going on in Ephesus, which is not too far away, in Turkey, or in Corinth, which is also in Greece, just like Thessaloniki. And so what were those heresies? Well, the nuts and bolts of it, he tells us in, in verse 2, that they had come to believe that the day of the Lord had come and gone, and they had somehow missed it. That the day of the Lord had come and gone and they had somehow missed it. Now, thus there was this false understanding, there was this false claim that Christ's coming and final resurrection had already happened so that people should no longer be waiting for it in the future. And you might say, well, that sounds weird. Obviously, the resurrection didn't happen. But you need to realize that the heresy that was present in Corinth as well as in Ephesus was this idea where false teachers were coming in and they were denying a physical resurrection and they were saying there was just a spiritual one and that already happened, the day of the Lord already came, the physical resurrection isn't going to come. And so this is what the false teachers were teaching in Corinth, it's what they were teaching in Ephesus. We see that in Paul's first and second letters to the Corinthians, as well as Paul's letters to Timothy, his pastoral letters to Timothy, as he's addressing those issues. See, false teachers believed in a spiritual resurrection, which is true. There is a spiritual resurrection. Paul unpacks the spiritual resurrection teaching in the book of Romans. And essentially what Paul says in the book of Romans is that all believers upon the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are resurrected in Christ. And that happens to all believers, but they were denying the physical one. And so what's the end result of that false teaching? Well, the end result of this may have been that people were suggesting that Christ wasn't going to come back physically at all. That he was just going to come back spiritually. And, you know, your resurrection was just kind of like a spiritual enlightenment. These are the early shreds that eventually lead to a heresy called Gnosticism. You know, you had this, this hard separation. Anything of the flesh was evil. The spirit is pure. And so you had these 
these Greek cultural syncretistic, that means a melding of concepts being mixed with the teaching of the resurrection. And so you can imagine the Thessalonians would be a little disheartened because here Paul was talking to them in 1 Thessalonians and now these false teachers are saying, whoa, 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 Jesus already came back. And they're like, he did? Like, I didn't even notice it. Maybe it was that lightning bolt the other day. And they start to doubt. Maybe there's not a physical resurrection after all. And so what we need to realize primarily, especially in this first week, that what Paul is answering is a question of timing. He's, a, he's answering a question of timing. And I want you to realize that this question of timing is not a unique problem to Paul's day and age. That Paul was, was dealing with it in that day and age, but we actually realize that we still struggle with this same heresy. See, Paul wants them to know that Jesus didn't come back yet, and he will come come back one day, and there are two very clear markers that must happen before he comes back. And he, if you read the text, what I would say naturally, if you read the text naturally, it's very obvious that Paul's saying these two things must happen. Well, listen, nothing's new under the sun. In 1914, a Jehovah's Witness leader, which is a cult, claimed that Jesus had returned invisibly, right? That's the same kind of heresy. Likewise, there are many, 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 many modern mainline churches. When I say mainline, I mean like the uh, kind of one-of-the-mill denominations that you think of when you, when you think of Christianity in America. There are many, a large percentage of the modern mainline denominations that teach that Jesus will not return physically, but that it's only spiritually in our hearts, that Jesus didn't actually come back from the grave physically. It was just like a, a euphoric sense of resurrection because they had this hope. And, and the same thing is true of us. All of those heresies are the same exact kind of heresy. In addition to that, we always have this pressing fear of imminency because there's a plethora of internet teachers who will point to every political leader under the sun and they'll say, well, Trump is the Antichrist and Biden is the Antichrist and Putin is the Antichrist and, and Basad is the Antichrist. And they, and they just start pointing at everybody under the sun and, and they say, well, that person... And so these are the things that Paul's addressing. Paul's addressing these kind of heresies like the, these kinds of heresies. And so this is the implied question. When is Jesus going to come and gather his people? When is he going to come to execute judgment and gather his people? Did it already happen? Did we miss it? Now, we don't have the time today to discuss all of the various approaches to eschatology, but we do want to focus on that question. Is the day of Jesus' return and the gathering of his saints imminent? So let's read verse 2 and 3 again. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in that way, because that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. We're going to spend all next week on the son of destruction, just so you know. So here's Paul's command. Paul gives command. He says, do not be shaken. 
Do not be shaken. Do not be alarmed. Do not be deceived. Like I said a couple weeks ago, Steve talked about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Every day, every, every other place that Paul talks about the day of the Lord in Corinthians, he uses it to refer to this idea of the consummation of the latter days. Now, counter to Paul's teaching, they had come to believe it already happened. I made that clear. But look what Paul says to them. His command is, do not be shaken. Do not be alarmed. He said, we need to remember something very important here. And, and this is extremely important in today's day and age. And so if you're kind of zoning out, listen to me. This is so important. I said it during worship. I'm going to say it again now. Eschatology is supposed to be a comfort, not a stressor. Eschatology is supposed to inspire hope in you, not alarm. If your eschatology makes you panic, it's probably wrong. Okay? Or you have the wrong perspective towards it. Eschatology is supposed to give you hope, not supposed to give you panic. True eschatology gives us stability, it gives us perseverance, it gives us confidence even in difficult times. So, what's the voice? Who is the voice who's bringing this panic into the, the lives of, uh, of the Thessalonians? Well, Paul says, I don't care where it comes from. Look what he says. He says, if it comes from a spirit. In other words, if an angel claims to tell you something, if you have a dream in the middle of the night, if you are standing there and all of a sudden you, it's like a movie playing out before your, your, your eyes, if that happens, he says that there's a spoken word. I don't think he means beatnik poetry. I think he means that there's a spoken word like a word of mouth or a sermon or a, a false teacher comes through and teaches something. He says if, if that happens, he says even if you get a letter that looks like it was written by me, signed by me, if it looks like it and if it claims that it was written by me and says I don't care if any of these things come reject all of them this is similar in Galatians to where Paul says if anyone teaches a different gospel let them be accursed whether it's an angel or whatever it might be the point is if you have a vision or if you hear about someone who has a vision about the way the world is going to unfold and it doesn't line up 100% with what Paul teaches, abandon it. Don't chew on it. Don't, don't marinate in it. Don't test it up against all the events of the day and be like, oh, maybe that is Putin. Hmm. No, Paul says ignore it. God does not change his mind, and what Paul taught was inspired by God. If someone claims to hear an angel, ignore them. If they come with impressive teaching and eloquence and all these kinds of things, ignore it. If they come claiming that Paul changed his mind, ignore it. Practically speaking for us, false teachers in our day and age either look like that extreme, you know, where they say, well, Jesus isn't coming back physically. Most people probably... Most people like you guys wouldn't fall for that, okay? But the threat for people like us, in other words, in our you know, brand of Christianity, evangelicalism, this is the big threat. My, uh, my eschatology professor in seminary, I went to kind of a conservative Baptist seminary, 
It was a dispensational seminary, for those of you who care what that means. My professor used to say, watch out, for he called them this or thatters. This or thatters. In other words, people who say, look at this. You see this over here? You see that over there? That's probably the hornets from Revelation. Look at that. You see that over there? Vaccine? Probably the mark of the beast. He called them this or thatters. He said, watch out for this or thatters who have always existed since the church was born at the, at the resurrection of Christ. He says, look at, out for them. Because there's an abundance of YouTubers and bloggers and pastors who claim to know precisely all of the ins and outs of these things will fold. And they point to this event and that event. They point to political figures. They point to current events to claim their points, to prove their points. It's all eisegesis, forcing something into the text and proof texting. Some claim to have had dreams, like Harold Camping, who's now dead, who said Jesus was going to come back in whatever year it was, 1987, then 1999, then 2012. And then finally God says, Harold, come on home. And he dies of a stroke a month later. Okay? And so the point, Harold was right. Someone went home in 2012, it was him. So the point is there's no short supply of people who think they've uncovered the secret code. They took a copy of the Da Vinci Code and they lined it up against the Bible and now they know when Jesus is coming back. Ignore it. That's Paul's word. Don't entertain it. Philippians 4, think about what's true. Not about conjecture and conspiracy, which the prophet Isaiah just rebukes outright. Why, though? Why? Why shouldn't we waste too much time over conjecture of, like, is it Putin? Is it Biden? Is it Trump? Is it... Why shouldn't we waste time? Because Paul says two things have to happen. Before Jesus comes and gathers his people, two things must happen. And he says, until these two things happen, the day will not happen. The two things are a giant rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Until those two things happen, the day of the Lord will not come. Okay? The rebellion. Um, the rebellion, if you were to look that word up in the original language, it can also be translated as apostasy, or the falling away, or defection. Now the reason the ESV translates it as rebellion is because contextually, in other words, when we look at ways that word is used in the Bible as well as other um, books written around the same time as the Bible, it's a political term. And so it's not just like a rebellion against, against you know, friend against friend. It's about rebellion against an authority. And so before Jesus returns there will be a deliberate, a deliberate abandonment of a formally professed position of faith. Okay? This is not some general waffling. Okay? Should I have a waffle? Should I not have a waffle? That's not what it is. Okay? This is not a general waffling of people throughout history where it's like some people leave the faith. The language, if you look at its contemporary uses, where it indicates a specific Event. Now remember, events can take place over a day or a week, whatever. It's an event, right? Um, right now the country music festival is happening. It's an event. It's not just at one day. It's an event. Over in the course of this event, there will be a clearly, specifically identifiable, unique, consummate act of rebellion. 
an event of final magnitude. That's how Pastor John MacArthur describes it. And such, a, such meaning is apparent because of the immediate context of false teaching. We see that in verse 1, uh, verse 2, and verses 9 to 12. And the clear allusions to Daniel's prediction of an end-time opponent, which we'll talk about more next week. And that end-time opponent will bring about apostasy. And I'll listen to this quote. This is from the Preach the Word commentary. The apostasy will not occur primarily in the non-Christian world, but rather within the proclaimed, self-proclaimed covenant community. In other words, the rebellion will not be of the world. The rebellion be, will be from within the church. A great falling away of people who we thought were true believers. There will be a massive apostasy. Many people will walk away from professing faith in Christ. Not just go liberal. They will walk away from professing faith in Christ. That has to happen before Jesus returns. The second thing is this. He says, the man of lawlessness must come. Like I said, next week we're going to hash this out at length and in depth. But literally, the man of lawless means the one without law. Right? That's probably shocked you. It points, this is the stuff they teach you in seminary, guys. It points to the one who elsewhere is called the Antichrist, the son of perdition. It can mean either against Christ or in place of Christ, and you'll have scholars who will debate that. But most Christians agree that this title, the man of lawlessness or Antichrist, is appropriate because this final end-time eschatological enemy will oppose the true Jesus, will oppose his true followers, and will desire to supplant Christ as the object of global worship. That's some of the things that just simply are embedded in the man of lawlessness' DNA. Like I said, we're going to hash that out next week, so we're not going to go any more into it. But the point for today is this. This is the point. The man of lawlessness, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, will be revealed before Jesus is revealed. Right? That's the point. It's the same word used. And so the great falling away must happen. The Antichrist must be revealed. He will deceive many. If possible, even the elect. He won't deceive the elect. But if possible, he could, but he won't. That's what Jesus says. And then the end will come. Now, I wanted to break all of that off of the rest of the sermons for this chapter because otherwise it would be way too much for one, one day. So I want to give you four encouragements from this text as well as for the rest of these sermons. Encouragement number one. Do not be shaken by everything you see, hear, or read on the internet. Okay? Do not be shaken by everything that you see, hear, or read on the internet. I don't think that we can say there's been a great apostasy in the true church yet. I think we've seen a consistent trickle down over the course of two millennia. Okay? But we have not seen some rebellious event. Maybe it will come tomorrow. I don't know, okay? Maybe it will come very soon, 
but I do not believe that it has happened yet. And I do believe the true church of Christ will know in their spirit when it comes. Okay? In other words, these things will be obvious because the spirit within you will testify, the spirit of Christ will testify to the spirit within you. So remember, this is Paul's argument in the passage that Steve talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is what he says. He says, Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night at the day of the Lord. And he says, but you're not of the night, you're of the day. And so you're not going to be surprised. And you're like, whoa, Jesus came back? Are you kidding me? You're not going to be surprised when Jesus comes back because you're not of the night. But all of those who are of the night, for them, it's going to be like you got woken up in the middle of the night and they're going to be shocked. Like had no idea how they saw it coming. And we're going to be like, well, yeah, obviously. Like have you not been paying attention? So remember that. Again, remember, don't be alarmed by everything you see, hear, read, by this new video, that new video, this new TikTok, that new TikTok, right? this blog, that blog, this vision that some guy claimed to have had 30 years ago, and now, well, I don't know, let's see. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> don't be alarmed. Eschatology should be a comfort, not a stressor. Eschatology is about perseverance. If you're so stressed out about the end times, either you're wrong or you're missing the point. All right, I hope that's not too blunt. This is about encouragement, not about stories of the boogeyman. Okay? Second encouragement. Don't be afraid of the end. <laughs> don't be afraid of the end. If you track the historical teaching of the day of the Lord, it is not judgment for you. It is victory for you. It is judgment on God's enemies. It is victory for his people. The same way that the day of the Lord in Exodus was used to describe the Passover and then the defeat of the Egyptian army, the same way the day of the Lord referred to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the day of the Lord is judgment on your enemies and victory for you. You don't need to be afraid. It's going to be over like that. Right? It's going to be over. You don't need to be afraid. Jesus wins. When it comes to the day of the Lord, regardless about who is right with timing, right? There's lots of arguments about timing. You know, is there a rapture? Is there not a rapture? Is there a little tribulation? There's not a little tribulation. We can talk about that stuff another day. But remember, this is to your glory and to your benefit. That's what you need to cling to for this purpose today. You are secure in Jesus if you know Jesus. God loves you. He chose you. He redeemed you. He will restore you fully. And because of these unbreakable promises, we can be confident. Our hope and expectation is the same as Paul's in 2 Timothy 4.8 when he says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. He's another Paul's reference to the day of the Lord. Let, be, let us be confident. Let us look forward with joy to these things. Let us not be dismayed. Let us not be terrified. Let us not panic. And if you feel panic, take a step back because you're either misinterpreting what the Bible would have you understand or you're believing things from false teachers who are made to cause you to be alarmed. Because that's the clear evidence of false teaching in this passage, alarm. 
Okay? Third thing, be humble. Be humble. Some people think that Jesus' return is imminent. Some people think it's not. Some people think there's a literal millennium. Others don't. Some people think that uh, Revelation is about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Some, some think it's in the future, right? Everybody has confidence in the fact that he will return. I'm going to be honest with you. There have been periods of my life when I have wrestled deeply with these things and it almost made me not want to think about it for a period of 10 years afterwards because I felt like I was trying to squeeze orange juice out of a rock. Be humble. Let me tell you something. Godly men and women, scholars who are deeply respected, disagree. Did you know that John Piper, John MacArthur, Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, and Calvin all had five different views on eschatology. Five. It wasn't that three of them agreed. No. MacArthur, Piper, Sproul, Spurgeon, Calvin all held different views. Spurgeon was a post-millennialist, for those of you who know what that means. I was shocked when I read that. Okay? The point is that these are godly men. I love these men. I love their books. They all disagree. But they all agree that Jesus is coming back, that you shouldn't be afraid, that you should have confidence. Be humble. Listen to me. Don't mishear me. You should know what you believe. And you should know why you believe it. Saying, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. It will all pan out in the end. Waka waka. No, that's not honorable, okay? You should know what you believe. You should know why you believe it. You should be able to willing to listen and learn from one another. We're still one body in Christ. So, and then that leads me to the fourth thing, okay? Be a student. Be a student. Ignorance is not an admirable trait, okay? Be a student. Just because end times is confusing doesn't mean you shouldn't read a book, okay? It is confusing. But there's a lot of good resources out there which the elders can recommend to you that you should read, that you could read, that you can get a lot out of it. Similarly, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully, but I mean this. I'm just going to say it. Lord, forgive me. Just because you watched FAI's podcasts does not mean you've heard every position on end times. Okay? You heard one. I know it's super popular right now. It's one position. Okay? Listen to different positions. John MacArthur has a lot of good stuff to say. Walvert has a lot of good stuff to say. George Eldon Ladd has a lot of good stuff to say. There are so many books and works out there that are so good. Be a student. Because this is what Proverbs 18, 17 says. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and expresses himself. Okay? And I joke about it all the time with the elders that I could watch one YouTube video and I say, oh, this is, this is, I'm convinced. And then I watch another video and I go, because it's complicated. But listen, be a student. Don't feign ignorance. Learn, grow, ask the elders for resources. 
Um, we, I made a new webpage. Jen and I made a webpage, revolvechurchnj.com slash eschatology. And we put up a bunch of resources up there to try to give you like an idea of the spectrum of what people believe. Uh, we're trying to put resources. So research, study. Don't just ignore it. All right. Do we have like five minutes or no? Instead of a table talk, we're going to do some Q&A. Be reasonable with your questions. Like, don't be like, can you explain the various views on the millennium? No, no, I can't. Not in five minutes. Okay? Questions and answers about this topic or something in direct correlation. Don't be afraid to ask. Yes. Specifically with regards to the millennium meeting. Right. Right. So the question is, you know, something like the millennium. Obviously, the fact that Jesus is returning has practical implications for our life. What about something like the millennium? There's so much discrepancy in different views. And so remember that eschatology, make some general comments. Eschatology should inspire you to have hope. It should inspire you to persevere. It should give you confidence that this isn't an arm wrestling match between Jesus and Satan. That this is, as Breton said on our doctrine class, this is like D-Day and V-Day. That the, the war was won on the cross and now we exist in this tension of already but not yet waiting for Jesus to ultimately reign completely and fully. Now, when it so that's how it should impact your life today. You should live like Jesus is coming back. You should live like you're of the light and you don't do the deeds of the darkness. You do the deeds of the light because you want to be faithful. The king goes away to a far country and while he's gone, he expects his, his stewards to be faithful to what they've been given. I'll make this comment specifically about the, about the millennium and how it is relevant for today. I think regardless of who you are and your position on the millennium, the reason the millennium has practical implication today is because it has practical implication for your hermeneutics. In other words, how you view the Bible. And so, for example, premillennialists think that the millennium is literal because it has to have these Old Testament fulfillments of things that have yet to be fulfilled. And so that practically has to do with how they read the Bible and how they view the faithfulness of Christ. Okay? The millennials view their, the millennium as more spiritual. And so there's a different sense of current victory that maybe a premillennialist would not have and an amillennialist would have because they view Christ as currently reigning in an already not yet fashion. Post-millennialists, because they think the gospel will ultimately bear fruit to fruition and then the end will come in a positive way, to put it really, it's kind of dumbing it down, but that things are going to get better and better until Jesus comes back. Um, so that gives them today a different sense of optimism, right? And so depending on how you view the millennium, 
will change the way you view the Bible. It should be the way you view the Bible will change the way you view the millennium. But I'm trying to say they're intertwined. We got one more question, two minute question. Anybody? It's gotta be louder. If you're just dipping in, um, Zondervan Academic, I think, I think it's Zondervan, puts out like those four views books. You know, it's like four views on the rapture, four views on Revelation. On the most basic level, those books are great because you're going to realize, I totally disagree with that one. I actually feel like I'm pretty lined up with this. And you get to hear them written by their own proponents, right? Because Steve always tells us a story that, you know, when you're in school and you have the theology that your school teaches, then you have this other theology. And everybody would love to hear what my theologian has to say about that guy. But it's better to read that guy so that you can understand where he's coming from. And so the Four Views books are good because then you actually hear, well, why do preterists actually believe what they claim? You know, or why do post-millennialists or preter or pre-millennialists, those sorts of things. But again, there's also uh, some resources on that eschatology page where we link to some articles and, so, and we're trying to represent the different views. All right, if you have other questions that you were too embarrassed to ask in front of people, feel free to come up. Maybe some of the other elders can come up and field some questions as well. But let me pray for us and then you guys can line up over there to get the kids. Father God, I do pray that you'd help us to understand these things. I do think they're important. And uh, Lord, I, I do believe that you want us to be inspired to have hope in the midst of it. And so Father, I pray that uh, as we look at the next few weeks, that this would be honoring to you in a way that is both humble, but also doesn't run from uh, difficult questions and conversations. And so Lord, help us to be inspired to be humble and to learn more and to focus on you. We thank you that ultimately you will return. Amen. All right, guys, have a good week. If you want to come up and chat, I'll be here.